Hello, I'm Mariette Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today our topic is how brain-working recursive therapy can ease children's experiences of death and trauma. Please note that this podcast is intended for an adult audience. It contains a discussion of violence and is not meant for sensitive listeners. My guest is clinical psychologist Shelley Hall from the Zululand region. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you, Mariette. Good morning. Just to inform our listeners, at the end of our discussion, Shelley is going to give us her three best tips on growing roses, and then it will be fun question time. Shelley, you're an experienced clinical psychologist and you work across many fields with both adults and children. Can you tell us how you came to Brain Working Recursive Therapy or BWRT? Yes, I was having a look around for some CPD courses. We all have to earn a professional development course at points for the HPCSA. And I saw the word brain that always catches mm-hmm. my attention because I'm absolutely fascinated by the brain. So I saw this course advertised and I decided to give it a try. You know, we're always looking for therapy techniques that can provide faster treatments as many people do not have the funds or perhaps even the patience for longer term ones. So I was completely captivated by what it promised and I have not been disappointed. Yes, and you've done both levels, haven't you? Yes, I have. And lots of extra courses with Terence Watson Self online too. And I know you've been asked to develop and run a course on how to work with children online using BWRT. Could you tell us more about that? Well, during the lockdown, I got a surprise call from Rafiq Lockett and his wife Hoda asking me to please develop a whole course for working with children. And this very new area for many of us of, of having to work online, having to adapt our techniques. So I hopped right on that and created the course to be able to train psychologists how to use brain working recursive therapy effectively with children, but also to adapt it to the online working space. Um, and it, it was really, really fantastic. We've run our first one. We're about to run another one this coming weekend. Yeah, and you told me that it's not only local um, facilitators who were involved, but you were also joined by some people from New Zealand. We did, indeed. It was wonderful to have some international interactions. We've got some colleagues from New Zealand joining us. Now, today we're looking at children and bereavement. Could you please start by defining bereavement so we know what it is? Big, long word. Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) it actually refers to the period of loss. So it is the time period in which a person adjusts to loss, or more simply put, it is the time when someone grieves. Mm. And you also mentioned that there's a difference between normal and more complicated bereavement. Yes, so normal bereavement, we kind of expect to happen over a period of time, and then little by little, day by day, somebody is going to start to feel better. It's not a straightforward process. We know there'll be good days, bad days, but on the whole, they eventually do start to feel 
better, that old saying of time heals. But with complicated bereavement, it's this unshakable grief. It doesn't follow the general pattern of improvement over time. So a person really becomes stuck, if you like, in this extreme longing for the deceased. And you see those scary symptoms, those destructive thoughts and behaviors, the person becoming completely, completely obsessed to the extent that they can't even resume normal life. And do children grieve differently from adults? Absolutely, they really do. And it's, it's mostly around the brain. You know, children don't have the same concepts or cognitive capabilities that adults have. So we find children really tend to grieve in bursts. So because of the development and their capabilities, as their meaning, the way they construct their meaning about death might change as they grow up, it can also bring grief back. And then... You and I spoke before our podcast and you said that many parents also feel they cannot share their grief with children. I mean, if a family has lost a member, then it's not only the children who are grieving, the adults are grieving as well. So could you talk about that topic? It is such a difficult one. So many of the parents, adults I see, are really overwhelmed with their own emotions and they also become quite fearful, you know, what to say what they might say could have a huge impact and they just don't know. So they tend to hide their emotions. I'll hear moms in particular saying they go and have a good cry in the shower or in the cupboard. They, they're afraid of overwhelming their children. But we know children learn well from observing us, what we call modeling. So we really need to model to our children how to express that pain and how to manage it during these difficult times. Yes, I can imagine that that if a child has been struck by a bereavement and no one is talking about it, they must feel quite isolated. Absolutely, because they sit there with their own little feelings and thoughts and not knowing what's going to come next or even what's going to happen to them, where are they going to live, how are they going to eat. So it is very, very important to initiate these discussions, to find out what the child is thinking and feeling and guide them from that point. Yeah, and that's quite a mouthful because death is not something that's readily discussed in our um, time, really. I mean, few people die at home, for instance. I think many yeah. adults have never seen anyone die, uh, never yeah. mind children. So how does a parent or a guardian approach a child who is grieving? What should one look out for? I find one of the most fascinating things in Zulu culture is that Zulus will whisper into a sleeping child's ear to let them know that a loved one has passed away. Before telling them out loud. Yes. And it's, it's sort of a very sweet and gentle approach in some ways, but we, I think we can all see it's also problematic. Mm. Um, I always find it best to think about where the child is at. So I often refer parents to some of the developmental stages, just so they can have an understanding of what a child is capable of in terms of thoughts and concepts. And then I like to say, ask your child, get your child to explain to you what they think has happened, mm -hmm. um, what they understand of what has happened, and you can then guide them from that point. We, we need to be honest. We need to give very simple, age-appropriately honest answers thinking about who that child is in terms of their developments. 
and kind of take it from that. And also to realize it's not a open and closed box. As I said, grief of children tends to happen in birth. So it is something that you're going to have to revisit, especially in younger children. So the discussion won't be a once-off, but you'll have to live with, with that child every day and see whether they are acting in a strange way or an unusual way and then maybe probe. Absolutely. Yes, because especially with younger children, we see far more behavioral-based changes. Um, you know, they might become more clingy, they might regress in potty training, they could become just disrupting their sleep or their appetite, not wanting to eat anymore, those sort of signs. And of course, your adolescents, they do tend to want to become more risky in their behaviors or, or even more withdrawn. So we do need to monitor in terms of behavior, especially as a very good guide as to where a child is at. Yeah, it's rather complicated because if you're struggling with grief yourself, then you're not yourself, well, as you usually are. And then you... Absolutely. I mean, having a child who's acting out or, or who wakes up at night or whatever, it, it really doubles the problem. Exhausting. Mm. And the little kids as well, because they don't have that concept of something permanently being gone. So, you know, you might go through the whole explanation, think they've understood, and the next morning they wake up and say, where's daddy? <laughs> and you've got to start the explanation again. Mm. So it is, it's quite a traumatic process. At, at which age approximately, if one generalizes, does a child understand that death really means the person is not coming back? I think it's usually from around age 10, they start getting a better concept. And before then, they've got a lot of magical thinking. So, and that can be quite dangerous. That's when they can often assign that somehow their behavior or something they did or did not do cause the parents or person to, to pass away. Yeah, so discussion is really important to know what's going on in, in, in that head. Absolutely. And I also wanted to ask you, how does one best explain death to a child, I suppose in an age-appropriate way? Because since we're not really at home with death, we tend to use euphemisms. Yes. And fancy words like bereavement, grief, yes. <laughs> and they're just they're too abstract. So I think it's always best to keep it as simple as possible. And if I'm working with a child, I, I do try and find out from the parents first, what is the family's belief about what happens when we die? Yes. And really stick, stick to those concepts without letting them get too abstract. Um, I love to use drawings of children as well, you know, letting them draw where they think their loved one is. And I don't believe, my personal opinion, there's any harm in allowing them to think of the loved one doing something that they really loved. Um, children I've worked with have often seen a father on his best fishing boat, catching lots of fish, drinking his favorite beverage. And I think that's a wonderful aspect to use that imagination you know, in a, a positive way. Yeah, and you talk about children that come to you. When does one know that you or your child need to get professional help in this sort of situation? It's quite a difficult one because I think they, we have to be very careful bringing a child to a psychologist. It can create some stigma for that child. What is that? What exactly do you mean by that? 
some of the older children that come to me, they'll say, oh, my friends at school, they saw I was being pulled out of class to come and see you. Now they all think I'm crazy because I'm seeing a psychologist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that stigma. So we have to be careful in how we do it. But um, I don't think there's anything wrong with if a parent is feeling overwhelmed without the child, just to come and have a chat and just get some pointers, just get a lay of the land to give you some basic coping skills and what to look out for, just some guidance. And also just to give you as the adult a space just to release some of that emotion so you can get a little bit more containment to be able to go back home and, and manage your family. But as we said, the, the definition is if someone is coping okay, then, then slowly, slowly, but over time, we should be seeing little improvements. But where you're seeing a child who is not sleeping, not eating, and it's going on for weeks, and they just really are not making any shifts, they're not talking, then that's definitely one that needs to come in for some professional evaluation. I keep thinking that death shakes us to the core and if at the if an adult say it's me if i don't really know what i think about death and about the afterlife it's going to be so much more difficult to guide a child along this road yes it is as i was saying earlier you're the one who models for your child so if you're very confused about it it is going to make it even more difficult and that's where, you know, allowing your child to even help you maybe sit down with the family and, and create some sort of understanding and, and try to make meaning of it could be quite useful. Yes. And then our topic today uh, focuses on children's experiences of death and trauma. Would you like to talk about the relation between these two, between grieving and trauma? So I think one could argue bereavement or rather loss is often a trauma in itself. Watching someone waste away from an illness or having someone pass away unexpectedly can be traumatizing. And in those instances, there might be signs of trauma such as nightmares or terrible flashbacks to those that passed. However, sometimes we know loss is not a trauma at all. There could be a sense of relief and normal sadness expected for bereavement. So in my experience, bereavement may also become traumatic when there is a sense of anger, um, especially guilt. And this tends to keep people trapped and replaying that loss repeatedly. So that's where you see a lot of trauma coming in, where someone feels they could have done something to prevent it or a guilt that they had a massive fight before the incident. So they actually become trapped in that loss. Yeah, or I suppose anger when someone has been murdered or something yes. along those lines. That's when bereavement does become more complicated because you get stuck in wanting to know how did that person die? Why didn't the police do enough? Those sort of questions. You really start to see someone becoming quite traumatised. So, so if I think about what we've said so far... Uh, maybe we can sum it up as if you have a child who has lost someone, regardless of whether it's your loss as well, you should really keep an eye on the child every day and look at behavior and things that change and then maybe create time for discussion or draw out the child. Yes, it's very, very important that we guide children 
to name feelings, give those feelings words. Um, drawing is so powerful, whether it's with paints or crayons or just drawing in the sand, letting them feel part of what's happening as well. Especially as they get older, asking them if they maybe would like to have a role in the funeral proceedings or um, drawing a special picture for for a family member, something like that, being part of it. Yeah. And then, Shelley, you have brought a case study, someone that you worked with that you'd like to share with us. And I'd just like to mention that you got permission to do this and that you're not going to use the child's real name. Yes, that's correct. So it was a very, very difficult case. And as we warned at the beginning, it is of quite a violent nature. It's quite upsetting. So the case was a little girl, let's say Sammy, and she unfortunately witnessed her father shooting her mother and then her grandparents all right in front of her. So she had to run for her life and hide with other relatives until she was told it was safe to come out. Yeah, one simply cannot imagine. Mm, very traumatic. How old was Sammy when this happened? She was eight, only eight. And were, were the parents and the grandparents and Sammy living in the same house? No, no, the father wasn't living with them. So it was the grandparents and the mom and, and just the little girl all living together. And did the, the mum and the grandparents pass away after the shooting? The mum and granddad both passed away. And it was even worse for me, and I think it's probably a, a little bit of a nightmare for any psychologist, is when the little girl was brought to see me, I always interview the, the caregiver first to get all the background information. And she told me that they hadn't told the little girl yet Dad had actually then gone off and turned the gun on himself. So oh. she was not aware that her father had passed away. And everybody was in such a state at that time, as you can imagine. I had to sit and decide if I was going to be the one to tell this little girl or not. So it was quite a thing. Yes. So how does one approach a case like that? How did you, how did you approach it? So initially, as I mentioned, I interviewed the caregiver to, to see how they felt Tammy was doing or, or, how, or not doing. And she wasn't really eating or sleeping. It had become a bit of an emergency situation. This little girl was just completely, completely shut down. So she had a lot to process with everything going on. And I just gave her that nice, gentle invitation to play. So I've got a beautiful playroom and I just invited her to play at first to try and establish some rapport. And typically with trauma, there's this avoidance. They don't want to revisit the event. They want to do everything but talk about the event. And that, that is part of your symptoms of someone who's under, been through a trauma. So I never, ever use any recipe or formula as such. I'm very, very cognizant of where my client is at, as we were talking of earlier, working with their needs rather than mine. So eventually I decided to remind her as to why she had been brought to see me um, and, and what her caregiver had told me, that I knew why she was there to see me. I had to press her a little bit. So 
So we then started speaking about what her beliefs were around heaven, where her mom was, where her grandfather was, what they might be doing, all of those things. And this is where that fantastic brain working recursive therapy really comes in. Because in my mind, I knew I was aiming for Rafiq Lockhart's Grief Buster or the Loving Goodbye Protocol. So it's a really, really wonderful protocol because it allows a child to have their final goodbye that they didn't get in that awful, awful traumatic moment. So I was prepping her for that protocol. And we also need to work in a really, really fast space because we all know how fast our brain works. So she came up with this concept of Ella the butterfly. Mm -hmm. So we drew beautiful Ella the butterfly. So this was how she was going to be traveling in our protocol we were going to be using. And it also worked beautifully later on because Ella can travel at any time to visit mom and, and granddad in heaven and communicate any messages she needed to at any time. So we worked with getting her to the point of, of opening up about what had happened and imagining where her mom was. I focused first on her mom, where her mom was. If I recall correctly, she said she was wearing her favorite color, which was red, this beautiful red dress, and she was eating cupcakes. She loved cupcakes, these really delicious cupcakes in heaven. So that was the images with drawings and things that we got to for our protocol. So I then used the BWRC protocol, the Love and Goodbye with her. And afterwards, you can imagine she had this huge release of emotion. She was very, very, very tearful. She was finally able to acknowledge that mom was gone. So that was all in, in one session, actually. Yes. Um, and then a week later, her caregiver brought her back. We had a little chat about her in the beginning, and she reported big and very positive changes. Sammy was talking about mom at home. She was sleeping better. She was eating better. It was really just so fantastic to see. So then the rest of the case, we just slowly worked through first um, losing. I, I then end up telling her about that. The family just couldn't. They were just not able to. So I had to take on that role. And, you know, children are quite smart. Mm -hmm. She says she had sort of realized something must have happened to dad too because she hadn't seen him or heard from him. Mm-hmm. So we used the grief buster for, for dad and then her grandfather. And then we had to move over to what we call standard level one BWRT work. So it's a, another protocol we use for traumas and anger. As you can imagine, she had a lot of anger for dad because she did see what he did. Yes. So this was very, very powerful work. And it often allows people to move from victim-like feelings to survivor. So I always say it's a little bit like removing a nasty piece of glass from under the skin so the wound can heal at last. Mm -hmm. So for her, she actually chose all on her own to edit what happened. So she chose that when dad arrived at the gate, her cousin was also there and she went off with her cousin. So she wasn't present for any of it. And when she came home, Granny and her aunt broke the news to her. Mm. And it has. It's really worked very, very well. This case was some time ago. I have um, followed up with them subsequently, and she's doing very well. I was concerned that with a lot of children having lost parents due to COVID, it may have re-triggered a lot for her. 
But her aunts have told me she's doing extremely, extremely well. It sounds unbelievably powerful the way you describe it and the effect it, it has. Mm. So before a case like this, I, I don't know how long it would have taken me and just to try and work through so many complicated emotions and understandings and concepts. The BWRT really puts the process back into the hands of the patient. It allows them to work through it to, uh, to address all of their needs. And, and say someone is listening and they have a child or they know a child who has, you know, who has lost a parent a couple of years ago maybe. Can this process mm. still be applied? Very much so. Very much so. I use this in my practice all the time, sometimes probably almost every day, because so many of us do carry losses from long ago that we've never really faced. And they continue to sit there like that little piece of glass under your skin. And this just allows you to, to process that loss. To be able to really let that person go to be at peace. And it doesn't mean that you have to come to, to your psychologist for a year. No. And that, that really is something that's very helpful, I think, especially with financial concerns, not only due to COVID-19, but due to other things as well. It's, it's a great comfort to think that this process can move really fast. Yes, and the person doesn't have to tell us a lot either. You know, this case was a really hectic trauma case. With children, I certainly do get a lot more information. But with adults, you don't have to ask for as much information. So as practitioners, we are also a little more protected from the trauma. Yes, and the person doesn't have to read, you know, tell it to us word for word. And I'm still wondering about Sammy's grandmother. What happened to her? Did she did she get hurt very badly, or was she all right and able to support Sammy after all that happened? She was able to support her after it. Um, you know, she had to process her own grief, but she seemed to to somehow manage, as far as I'm aware. I didn't see her. We're not supposed to see the same people in the same family, multiple relationships with HPCSA ethics. I see. Um, but I did, did ask and I certainly offered names, but she seemed to cope. And that is the thing with, with grief. You know, some children, some adults don't need extra professional assistance. Some people are able to cope. And some of us are, are not, and we need a little extra help. Yeah, and what strikes me is that if someone is listening and it it could either concern a child or it could be an adult. And the person feels that, that they've lost someone and it's now going on for a year or longer and they're still not feeling better, then it could mean that they have complicated grief to work with. Yes, it, it could well be. Um, or it could just be that there's some feelings of guilt or anger even that's keeping them trapped. Yes, but the difficulty is the trauma itself makes us avoid, makes us not want to talk about it at all. Mm. So often the people that really need help just feel they can't express it, so they don't seek the help. I see. But it really is. This process, the loving goodbye, the grief buster, just it offers such a fantastic relief. It's, it's common for children and adults when, they, when we've done the process, the first thing they say is, us. Ah, 
feel so much lighter. I physically feel as if something has been lifted off my shoulders. Yeah, and I remember, uh, Rafik, in the first podcast that I did on BWRT, which is also in this podcast series, he mentioned that people needn't fear that this process, this BWRT process, is going to make them forget their loved one. No, it really doesn't. Um, when I'm working with children, as I mentioned earlier, I get them to see their loved one doing something happy and in their happy space. So you're very much remembering the good things and thinking about all those happy times. It's, it's a little bit like you're creating a file and you're putting that file nice and neatly into a filing cabinet and gently closing that filing cabinet door. All you are taking away are those messy, what I say to children, all the yucky worry monster kind of things that are, are making it all pussy and nasty. You're just cleaning that away. So you can have this beautiful file that you can go back and open and think of all the happy times anytime you want to. That sounds good. And can all this be done online, this whole protocol that you were talking about? Absolutely. It works so, so well online. And part of that course, I, I teach is how to use it online. It really, really does. Because it's, it's not a traditional talk therapy where the person is having to talk and talk and talk and talk. Yeah, this provides a lot of hope, I think. It does. And with our technology now, you know, children can draw things and show me on a camera. It works beautifully. Mm. Anything else you'd like to mention concerning children who have lost someone? For me, it's, it's just please open up that conversation. I know you are trying to process your own emotions. I know you might be afraid of what if you open this Pandora box that you can't contain. But we need to really be brave and just open that conversation. Don't be afraid to cry in front of your child, to let them hug you, to hug them back. Just be present with that grief because it isn't something we can just delete. It is a process that we need to go through. And BWRT just clears away that yucky stuff so you can all work through that process in a much kinder, calmer way. Thank you. Uh, Shelley, you work in three Zululand towns. Could you just tell us which ones they are? In Pengeni, and then a suburb of Richards Bay called Merencia. And once a week I go all the way through to Ashawi. And if people would like to know more about your work or if they are looking for your contact details, where can they find them? I'm on Facebook. I've got a page called Love Yourself, one word. Yes. So if people type the at sign, mm. at Zululand Psychologist into search, it'll bring up my page, Love Yourself. I'm also on LinkedIn under my name, Shelley Kim Hall. And then my cell phone number for the practice is 063-055-2172. Yeah, and if someone happens to be listening to this episode in the car or can't um, jot this down, this podcast will appear as an article on my website, mariettesneiman.co.za, and there you will find all Shelley's contact details. Now, Shelley, uh, I happen to know that you grow roses, the most beautiful <laughs> roses, and I can't wait for those best tips on growing roses. 
my daughters always say, mommy's playing in her roses. It's her therapy <laughs> time. And they really are. <laughs> my three best tips. I think if you're starting out, if you're buying your roses from Ludfix, they've got a little ladybug on the label. And it, these are called eco-chic roses. So they're much hardier. They don't need as much care. So I suggest if you are starting out, rather choose those ones. My second tip is, indeed, make them your therapy. Talk to your roses. Mm. You need to listen to them every day. To look at any changes that might be happening, to see if they need more water, any action needed. So definitely talk to your roses. And the third one is spraying. Roses are a lot of work. So you do need to spray one-week rose care. And the second week, especially if you are in the KZN area with high humidity, Kronos. Kronos is for something called black spot that makes all the leaves drop. Mm -hmm. Lots of work, but well worth it. And if it keeps on raining and you can't spray, what do you do then? Cry. (laughs) (laughs) I I have been known to to rush out and, and quickly spray and just hope the spray has some effect. Yeah, but you know they are a little bit hardier than that. It's just January, February they tend to burn where I am if they don't have leaves. They actually get sunburn, which is quite destructive to the poor rose bush. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I see similarities between the way you approach your patients and the way you approach your roses. They get loving care. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now your fun question. I was. Fascinated to see that you've lived in Jamaica. Yes. And my question is, in a magical world, now if you didn't have to consider any practicalities, what is one wonderful thing about Jamaica that you would have liked to bring home to South Africa? Sure. I think what really struck us was just the openness of the people. Mm. They are such embracing people. Um, It was so easy just to make friends, to find a whole circle of people willing and ready to embrace you and were curious to get to know you without judgment. So I think that's one thing I'd really like to bring back here, something we really need. That sounds wonderful. Thank you, Shelley, for your time. Thank you, Marie. And to our listeners... Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. It would be greatly appreciated if you would rate and review the podcast series where you download your podcasts. Come Clear and Helpful is available on iTunes, Spotify, Iono FM and Player FM. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, Mariette Sneeman, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.00.